Uh, tonight we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and what we're going to be talking about is salvation's future, what the future of our salvation holds, and how that encourages us today. Um, I read a story, it was from the early 20th, 20th century, about a young boy who was sent to a boarding school by his parents so that he could get a better education. And this boy's uh, uh, story, uh, part of his story about his experience there, uh, it says this. He goes, I must add that I suffered at that time from a sickness, speaking of his time at the boarding school, which has remained with me all along life's path, and that was homesickness. Homesickness is an awful thing, as also is the feeling of loneliness, of being destitute and unhappy, which stem from it. It is difficult to define homesickness, but to me, it means the consciousness of a person being out of his home area and that which is dear to him. My three years at boarding school were very unhappy, and that was only because of this longing. I had companions there, and I enjoyed the lessons, but I remember as if it were yesterday sitting in church on a Sunday night when I had come home for the weekend and suddenly being hit by the thought, this time tomorrow, I shall be back at my lodgings at school. And all at once, I would be down in the depths. And I think every Christian, every true Christian who is longing for heaven at one time or another, at different times in different ways, experiences this type of homesickness. This word, homesickness, might be a perfect word to describe the condition of the recipients of Peter's letter. You know, in his opening two verses, he, he used metaphors that gave us a hint of this very thing where he called them chosen exiles, dispersed abroad. You know, Jews in the Old Testament were characterized by this very type of thing. They were a scattered people. They were a conflicted people. And throughout the Old Testament, you study, you'll see that as God's chosen, they wrestled with what it meant to be God's chosen, to be the object of his affections, yet often finding themselves abandoned seemingly in foreign lands. As God's exiles, they struggled with the question of how their culture was supposed to exist with others or in other cultures and what it merely meant to behave as God's people often finding themselves living in places under ungodly leadership and rule. And so Peter here takes up the questions, I believe, brought on by this sense of, of Christian homesickness, this longing for heaven while we're still here on this earth. And really to, 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 ask, or to answer the, ask and answer the questions of the consciousness of a person who feels out of home and away from which that, that which is very dear to them. So let's pray. And then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for the opportunity to come together to praise your name, to lift up your holy name, to glorify your name. God, I know that there's many of us in this room, maybe many watching online tonight that are dealing with things, struggling with things. Lord, life has its numerous and never-ending difficulties that, that come at us. Lord, maybe some of us are struggling with the difficulties that are a result of our own just dumb decisions, <laughs> the, the sin in our life that we seem to be giving into. And yet, Lord, when we face this life and these decisions, sometimes we could find ourselves asking, when is it going to end? When can we just go home? 
Lord, I pray, God, that as your letter encouraged the original recipients, Lord, that Peter's letter and his words would encourage us tonight, God, that we would really learn what our future holds for us, the future of our salvation and what it means and how that encourages us today. Lord, let us leave here tonight closer to you. Let us leave here tonight encouraged instead of discouraged, God. Lord, knowing who you are, what you've done for us, what you have in store for us, and all that that means. God, we love you so much, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He starts out after the first two verses we looked at in our last two studies, and he says this in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it might seem just kind of like a, like a basic kind of opening to a letter, um, you know, a, a simple opening greeting, but I believe there's more to it because what Peter's doing here is he's, he's opening his discussion, his encouragement to his readers with pronouncing a blessing on God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I want you to notice is, is as he's established their identity in the first two verses, you guys are chosen exiles of the dispersion. You're, you're dispersed abroad. You're all in these you know, different places. Peter, uh, Peter doesn't get right into the details of their difficult circumstances. He doesn't start right away with, yeah, it's tough and I know. There will be plenty of time for that later in the letter. Nor does he open with telling them, okay, this is how you're supposed to live in this evil world. There'll be plenty of time for that later. What he does do is he opens the, the, the meat, the body of his letter to the people, encouraging and calling his readers to approach their difficulties with a particular mindset, with a decided and determined prayer of praise. And he's exampling this by opening his letter with this. Before we get into the tough stuff, let's start with blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter, being Jewish, and, and a lot of his readers of this letter, being Jewish themselves, this was a very Jewish thing to do. Jewish prayers very often opened with words like blessed be God. In an ancient Hebrew prayer, prayer called the Shimone Eshre. Don't know if I pronounced that right, okay? But this, this, this ancient Hebrew prayer was called the 18 Blessings. And it was something that was recited three times a day, or supposed to be recited three times a day in every single synagogue, these 18 Blessings. And each one of these 18 Blessings would end with, Blessed be you, O God. And so, if you imagine in the Jewish culture, growing up in the synagogues and as they became young men and, and older men in the synagogues, reciting these 18 blessings every single day, they had this habit, this knowledge, this, this connection to 18 blessings three times a day. They were saying, blessed be you, O Lord, 54 times a day as a part of their religious worship. 54 times a day, every single day, blessed be you, O God. Do you think that maybe had an effect on their perspective in living life? I'm sure it did. Now, Peter, in his letter here, he's calling on his readers and, and us today that study this letter, wherever we may be, whatever circumstance we may be in, to always start and end with praising God, blessing God for who he is. When we, when we start our own individual look at our own circumstances, right? When we start our look at our, our circumstances, especially when it's difficult circumstances we find ourselves in, it's always good to remember who God is and what he has done. Just at the very beginning, it establishes a foundation for us to find peace upon. And so for Peter's readers, especially the Jewish ones, this phrase, he opens up with, blessed be the God 
God the Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, this phrase, I believe, especially for his Jewish readers, transported them um, really in, in spirit in a sense from whatever foreign place they found themselves, dispersed abroad, whatever difficult place and difficult circumstances they found themselves, transported them all the way back to Jerusalem, all the way back to the temple. And it's really Peter with one phrase, gathering all of the distant and scattered Christians, really on the wings of this mutual prayer, carrying them all the way into the very throne room of heaven, which is always the best place to start to evaluate our circumstances. As Christian believers, having the right perspective of who we are in Christ, that we are God's children, and all that Peter is going to get into in this letter is the critical element to start with when we go, okay, now let me look at my circumstances, let me look what's happening, let me evaluate what's taking place, and then to work through that and come to decisions. It's always, blessed be God. You are God Almighty. And what an encouragement this was to them and is meant to be for us. And no matter where we are, no matter what we are going through, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, we can each, as God's children, take a moment with decided and determined prayer. We can stand, find ourselves standing in the very presence of Christ, the very throne room of God, that we are in spirit seated with him in right now, as he is praying and interceding for us, we could find ourselves, no matter what's going on and where we're at, let me take a moment just to orient myself and know that God is with me and I'm with him. And when we stop to bless and praise God, encouragement follows. I believe that. So Peter goes on in verse 3 there, and he says, Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into the living hope, or into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now this phrase is meant to bring Peter's struggling readers um, high above their issues, right? Oftentimes when, they're in the, when, they're in the, when we are in the midst of it, all we can see is what's right in front of us, right? We, all we can see is the trouble. All we can see is the difficulty. All we can see is the hopelessness. All we can see is the, the, the perceived bad, negative stuff that's going to happen. And so Peter gives this phrase here that, that, that just takes them way above, bird's eye view, if you will, right, to grant them a larger perspective. And I think it's this, that our ability to arrive safely at God's home, our ability to, to get through this life and all that this life throws at us and all the persecution and struggles and temptations, our ability to get through it and arrive safely in heaven, at home with our God, is rooted firmly in God's mercy. And it's rooted in one very huge truth, that we are born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, I believe the remedy, the cure for, for, for the, the homesickness that Christians may feel from time to time, living in this world, right? We know biblically that we're not of this world, but we're in this world. And that homesickness that could sometimes come when we feel like, can I just go home? The remedy for that, the cure to help us deal, is to understand and, and, and to see um, all that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead means, right? Jesus Christ was the chosen of God who was sent, but voluntarily he left his home and descended into an exile-like existence here on earth. 
God the Son, God in the flesh, left the heavenlies to come and dwell here, to clothe himself in frail humanity, and to dwell here in an exile-like existence. But he didn't stay here. He didn't die here and be done with it. He rose from the dead. He was resurrected. And he ascended back home to heaven, and it's through his resurrection. It's through his ascension to heaven that we who are children of God, we who claim the name of Christ, it's through that truth that he was risen, that he went back to heaven. It's through that, our faith, we place our faith in that reality that Jesus died for our sins, that he, that he went into the grave, that he was rose, risen again on the third day, that he rose to the right hand of the Father. It's through that that we are born into a living hope, it tells us there. Born into a living hope. Well, what does that mean? What is a living hope? What does that living hope look like? I think in a sense in these first few verses, three through five that we're looking at tonight, Peter is saying simply, I praise God for his plan in saving people. I praise God for his plan in saving me. That plan includes a changed life here on earth. That plan includes our inheritance in heaven. And that plan includes a security the security that we have until we get to heaven, and all of that is summed up in this living hope, this living hope. And so the first thing is this changed life here on earth. He says that he has given us new birth. Now, if you're a student of the word, you know that the Bible teaches us that in Christ, we are spiritually born again, right? It's a Christian term, born again, being born again. Um, this was the phrase that Jesus used when he had a conversation with the Pharisee, Nicodemus. He was a religious leader, and he's like, you know, how do, I, how do I get saved, essentially? And Jesus is like, you have to be born again. And you could read their whole conversation in the Gospels where he's like, bro, I don't get that. What does that mean, you know? <laughs> like, do I, do, I, do I, like, climb back into my mother's womb and be born again? What are you talking about? And Jesus is like, no, I'm talking about spiritually. Spiritually, you need to be born again. This phrase early in the Jesus movement, really the, the genesis of Calvary Chapels and up through the 80s and into the 90s, um, was a term that Christians identified with, I'm a born-again Christian, right? But it also became a derogatory term, you know? Oh, you're one of those born-again Christians, aren't you? Right? When I was growing up in high school in the 80s and the Christians that I knew, um, I didn't like them because they were Christians, but that term born-again was just kind of like a distasteful thing to me. Oh, you're one of those, Right? as if there's any other type of Christian rather than a born-again Christian, but that's besides the point. Um, today, you don't hear that phrase too much, I think, with Christians identifying, you know, I'm a Christian. Like, it, it's very rare that I hear a believer today go, no, I'm a born-again Christian, right? I'm a born-again believer. Um, it's a term that's been co-opted in marketing, you know, for a while there. I couldn't find them today. Incidentally, I was looking up. I think there was a, a brand of jeans or something called born-again jeans that was used as marketing, right? Just the devil trying to water down terms that are, that are critically important to us. You know, and today you go, I look, tried to look up born-again jeans, and there's like 50,000 Etsy shops, Christians making clothing stuff, and they call it born-again. So anyways, but point being, the term is important. The term is a critical part of our identification of, of the description of who we are as Christians, 
that we are born again because the Bible teaches us that, that, that prior to our conversion, prior to us being born again, there was an element of us that was dead, right? We're a trinity created in the, in the, in the, in the image of God, body, soul, and spirit as he is God the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're, we're, we're created in that likeness. And there's a part of us, our spirit, that was dead before we were made alive through Jesus Christ. And that's that concept in that very conversation Jesus was having with the Pharisees, that we are born again. Our spirit is born anew. Now, you know, when you go, what, what exactly does that mean? What is this new birth that God grants us? The phrase literally means to be born from above. All right, that's the concept. To be born from above. It's a spiritual birth, as I said. Really indicating a transformation that occurs on the inside that, that, that works its way out through our life as we grow and live in Jesus. In John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, it says this, But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent as of, or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. They were born right? Birthed, not of natural descent, but born of God. Their spirit was, was, was made alive. In James chapter 1, verse 18, it says, by his own choice, speaking of God, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And then Peter says here in verse 23 of chapter 1, and we'll get to it eventually, he says, look, show love to one another because you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So there's this concept here that the Bible teaches that when we come to Christ, when we put our faith in him, when we trust in him for our salvation, our spirit is made alive. It is born, if you will. And so as we were born physically once, we are then spiritually born again. And our spirit is made right with God. Now, I'm emphasizing this because in those three verses, it's all past tense. I, I received a note from somebody recently that, that it was a very lengthy note and comment they, they typed in um, trying to say that, that nobody is born again right now, that it's a future event that's going to take place. And, and, I mean, it was, like, it was way too long, right? I mean, give me the TLDR, right? This is, this, is, this is ridiculous. It was a book. And I'm like, okay, and I read it. And, and, you know, so many verses taken in an isolated context but rejecting the entire context of the word. And these three verses here make it very clear that, that the born-again experience Christians have isn't something future. It's something that has already happened to a believer in their conversion, and so I believe Peter is bringing up this concept that you were born, you were given new birth into a living hope because seeing what God has done in the past is very important to, to understanding the hope we have for the future. Right? It's, it's a part of establishing trust. Right? God has been faithful, so therefore I can rightfully expect him to be faithful. Right? God has done this work in my life, therefore I can trust that he's going to do the other works that maybe haven't happened yet in my life, but he said they're going to happen. That's the concept here. And so we're born into a living hope, but in verse 4, he starts to define what that means a little bit more. He goes, we're born into a living hope, and then he goes, and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So because Jesus rose from the dead, 
because he ascended to heaven, through our faith in him, we are born again. Our spirit is made anew. And that comes with some promises. That comes with some truths that the word tells us. And really some foundational things that are a part of, you know, just like a little baby is born. And then they grow. And then they learn to walk. There's some stepping stones that are essentials to our faith as we grow in our maturity in Christ. And one of them is understanding that a part of this living hope, you know, not only are we born into a living hope of a changed life, but we're also born into a living hope of an inheritance, it says there, that is kept for us in heaven. Now, the greatness of this future inheritance, this future inheritance, is summed up in three words by Peter. He calls it imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, those three words, I think, are meant to get our minds on the magnitude of the inheritance that we have awaiting us in Christ. Because it really is something that, that is beyond our comprehension here and now. We can get a glimpse of it, and the Bible helps us understand a little bit of it, but in its full glory, I think it's just something we're not going to understand until we get there and receive it. But let's look at these three words. He says imperishable. That word imperishable means it is not able to be destroyed. Or to put it another way, it lasts forever. Okay? So the inheritance that we're going to receive is imperishable. Now, if you think of that word inheritance, you're going to think of, you know, oh, someone in my family that was elderly or whatever, they passed away and they left me an inheritance, right? And we talk, uh, um, typically think of inheritance in, in the concept of, of earthly things, right? Money, houses, cars, businesses, whatever that may be. And, you know, in every inheritance that we ever receive here on earth is temporary. We have to understand that. It is temporary. If we receive money as an inheritance, we only have it until it's gone, until we spend it. If we receive a house as an inheritance, we only have that house until we leave this earth or that house somehow gets, gets burnt down or something happens to it or we sell it. Same thing with cars, right? You have a brand new car and the, the second it's one inch past the edge of the dealer, it's already dropped in value because, oh, it's deteriorating. In 2 Peter Chapter 3, he tells us that everything on earth will dissolve one day. Everything on earth will dissolve one day. It'll be burnt up is what he says. So that stuff you have that you may be putting your hope and trust in to make sure your life is better, to make your life better, to think these are the things that are going to get me through my difficulties ultimately. That new car you got, well, you better enjoy it because one day it's going to be burnt up. That cool new home you're redecorating, it's going to get burnt up too. That money you have is going to go away. Everything one day is going to be burnt up. It's all going to be burnt up. But, but I think what Peter is getting here to his writers specifically, because when you think about what else is going to be destroyed, humanity, we die, right? We die. We don't live forever. That may have been God's original intent. But because sin entering the world, we don't live forever. Creation, the Bible tells us, will also be undone and replaced. Everything is going to be destroyed. But spiritually minded people are people who think beyond this life, beyond this reality to an imperishable inheritance. Our hope is not in the stuff we have. It shouldn't be in the life we have here, the time we have here, because those things will die, those things are dying, and so hope in those things is a dying hope. It's a dead hope. Our hope as believers, our living hope, 
that is imperishable. Especially the hope we need to cling on to when we're finding ourselves in difficult times is in the new life that has been given to us by God. It is in Jesus Christ, in him being resurrected and ascending to heaven. It's in the promises of being a co-heir with Christ and all those things that we've been promised. That life that we've been given by Christ through being born again, the, the, the promises that he's given us, what's awaiting us in heaven, none of that can be destroyed. None of that can be destroyed. It's truly an inheritance that is imperishable. Now he says it's undefiled. That word undefiled means free from sin. It's hard to imagine a world, an existence that is free from sin. From the day all of us were born, we've only known a world full of sin. We've read about a world without sin, but we've never been in one. I mean, think about it, a world without locks because nobody's a thief. A world without security systems because nobody's trying to break in. Cities where, where, where keys are unnecessary. Cities where women could walk down any street at any time of the day without worrying about being assaulted or harassed. Cities where men are just noble and honorable and trustworthy. No jails, no police, good or bad. No sin at all, right? Imagine, imagine. Well, our inheritance which includes our forever in heaven with God, is, a, is, a, is an existence without sin, without blemish. It's an existence where we don't have to have sin within us, let alone deal with sin around us. It is a, it is a, it is a forever in heaven with God our Savior, with no stain, no blemish of any kind. The inheritance that is awaiting us, the, the perfection in heaven in a glorified body, it will not be morally compromised in any way, shape, or form. It will never be sinfully polluted. It will never be defiled. It is completely undefiled. In the present world, I think we would all agree is quite the opposite, right? Even as Christians, those of us that call ourselves Christians, I'm a child of God, I've, I've put my faith in Jesus, I believe that, that he is who he is and did what he did for me, and I, I trust in that. Our hearts still harbor sin, and still harbor wickedness, and still harbor deceit, don't they? Don't disagree with me, because then you're doing the sin of lying, Right? We all have wickedness within ourselves. Our hands are stained with pride. Our eyes are still stained with lust. And that's all the defilement that our world knows, and we know it all too well. Although those who put their faith in Christ are forgiven, while we're here on this earth, we still struggle with our old, fallen, sinful nature. We still wrestle against it, don't we? We think thoughts and we go, what on earth is that? We have temptations come against us and we know the very moment the temptation even rears its head, we go, I'm not supposed to do that. And yet we entertain, we give in, and many times we stumble and we fall. I think that's why the Bible says there are none righteous. No, not one. And I love how the Bible added that part to that phrase because I think there's always someone in the world when the Bible says there are none righteous. Oh, I am. 
Bible's like, no, not one. I so look forward to our inheritance. I so look forward to the time when I don't have to deal with sin anymore. Not in my own life, in my own heart. Not in the world around me. Not in the people around me. But until I get to heaven, it's not yet. This concept of this sinless, without stain, without blemish, perfect reality, it's so unlike the world we know. It is so unlike the world we know. In Revelations chapter 5, we, we get a glimpse of why this is and how it can be. In Revelation chapter 5, we have the Apostle John shown a vision of our future home, a vision of the inheritance, if you will, a vision of heaven and the perfection that is there. And in his vision, he sees that there is not a single person worthy to take the scrolls of God's plan for our inheritance and bring it to completion. Not a single individual. And this was so discouraging to him in that vision that he started to weep over humanity's universal unworthiness. But then, one at last comes forward in his vision. And it is Jesus, the Christ, the Lamb of God, who comes to rescue a polluted, defiled, unworthy world. He alone is pure. He alone is undefiled. His character alone is spotless and without blemish. He is Jesus, the undefiled. And when we put our faith in him, we are born into a living hope that is connected to Jesus Christ. Through him alone, we enter into God's presence and receive an inheritance that is so glorious, Peter calls it undefiled, without any hint of sin. And then he uses this third word, unfading. That word's different than imperishable. It means it never loses its quality or it's not subject to decay, right? I just talked about cars earlier, right? Oh, I could spend all this money for a brand new car. You go, oh, okay, it's already lost 25% of its value. What? I haven't even driven it a mile yet. But its quality starts to decay. Things we invest in, right? We buy new clothes. They start to fade after a while. We buy new this, new that. They decay. They lose their quality. As I get older, I'm learning that the human body fades more and more, faster and faster. Each year, my strength is fading. Each year, gravity is winning the battle. Each year, I don't heal as fast. I used to love going snowboarding. And my nickname for snowboarding, um, well, I had a bunch of nicknames people would call me. But I like to go fast. And going fast often came with great crashes. And I just crashed so many times. And people would be like, why do you do that? And I'm like, I don't know, it's fun, you know. Um, I can't do that anymore, right? I get out of bed and my back hurts. I just slept on, how's my back hurt? I just, all I did was roll out of bed. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse, right? Because our bodies decay. And they decay more and more as time comes upon us. But our inheritance will not decay. will never be subject to decay. The Bible tells us that when we're reunited with Christ, we are going to be given new bodies, incorruptible. They will never decay. 
They will never be sick. They will never have disease. They will be incorruptible. And we will be permanently spotless, not just starting that way and then decaying into, well, a little dirty, a little more dirty. No, we will be permanently spotless. That is an inheritance that awaits us. And again, I cannot wait to get there. I cannot wait. This inheritance, this imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance is what awaits all who are in Jesus Christ. So not only are we born into a living hope, the living hope of a changed life, not only are we born into the living hope of an inheritance that is kept for us in heaven, awaiting us, but verse 5, he says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. We are also born again into a living hope of a power that is beyond us. A power that can accomplish now and forevermore that which we could never accomplish on our own. A power that is beyond our comprehension. A power that is off the scale and off the charts in every possible way. So you said our inheritance is kept for us in heaven. In the meantime, we are here on this earth as God's children. And it says we are being guarded through faith. Guarded through faith. That word guarded means to be secured. Not as in being held in custody like a criminal. Quite the opposite. It's, it's the idea is that security is provided for us. To guard us. To protect us. For what? For a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now you might say, wait a second, I thought I'm saved now. Right? We have salvation now through our faith in Jesus Christ. We are born again through our faith in Jesus Christ. But our complete, total deliverance from the defilement of sin, our complete and total being without sin and not having to even think about or deal with it forever is yet to come. And that is what it's being referred to here. So when we live this life, And we struggle with the sin and the temptation that comes against us. We're like, oh, why? Take heart. The time is coming. The inheritance that God has for you to be delivered from that completely, it's coming. But until we get there, there is a power that created the entire universe that is guarding you through your faith in Jesus Christ. And so when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're granted the status of saved. We're granted the status of forgiven. And we're seen by God the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ just as Jesus is, spotless, blameless, without sin, without defilement. But you and I know the reality, don't we? Right? God looks at us through the blood of Christ and he goes, I don't see any sin. Well, I'm like, I looked at myself in the mirror today and I saw a whole bunch. What does this mean? You know, that sin, that, that defilement, that blemish, while we're here on this earth, it still exists with us. No matter how hard we try, we still stumble. No matter how hard we, 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 we intend, we still fall, we still give in to sin. Right? That's the experience of every single one of us. It can be lust. It can be pride. It can be self-righteousness. 
It can be unforgiveness. It could be a, a whole list of things. And I don't know about you, but there have been so many times in my life where I'm wrestling with this concept, I'm saved. I'm forgiven by God. God sees me through the blood of Christ as, as sinless and spotless and without blemish, yet I know, I know what I'm doing, and why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? And we say that echoing what Paul said in Romans chapter 7, and I want to read it to you. Paul the Apostle, this is what he said in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. He said, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand what I'm doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. So now, I am no longer the one doing it, but it's the sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one who does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, talking about the spirit, that born-again part of you, I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, my flesh, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. You see, what is Peter talking about here when he says we are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that awaits us? I believe it's this. We live our life. We want to please God. We want to obey God in all things. We intend to. We read our Bibles. We worship. We fellowship with Christians. We go to ministries to help us struggle with our certain things, and, and we have a desire to, to live in a way that glorifies God. And yet we find ourselves doing the things we don't want to do. It's like we see sin coming. It's creeping down the hallway. Whether it's my flesh or the devil or whatever it is, it, the temptation is coming and I see it. I'm like, I don't want to do it. I know I shouldn't do it. Stay away from me. And then suddenly, why am I doing it? Why am I, why am I engaged in this? I don't want to disobey God. But I feel trapped. I feel like I can't do anything about it. Sin is coming. The devil is demanding his due. I can't resist this in any way, shape, or form. And we just go, security! And God shows up. And God shows up. He looks at our sin. He looks at our flesh. He looks at the devil. Then he turns and looks at us, his children, helpless against all of it. 
And God says, I got you. I got you. The day is coming where you're not going to have to deal with this anymore. But that day is not yet. And so while you're here, trying to live for me, trying to be obedient, but you're dwelling with this flesh that is constantly pulling at you to do the wrong things, and the devil who is constantly tempting you to do the wrong things, and all this stuff is keep coming at you. Look, one day you will be fully delivered even from the presence of sin, but until then, when sin comes after you, you have the opportunity to cry out for help. And every time, the security guard shows up and says, don't worry, I got you. There's times even when we, we don't cry out like we should. And we flirt with sin. And we give in and we stumble and we fall in a moment of weakness. We find ourselves, I just disobeyed God. I can't believe I did that. And then the devil shows up to condemn us in our failure and say, you're a horrible Christian. You're not really a believer. And, and we go, oh, and, and we just feel this, this, this shame come upon us. God shows up. He says, don't worry. I got you. Even when we find ourselves in seasons behaving like the world instead of God's children, God even guards us against ourselves and he says, don't worry, I got you. And when the world and life and circumstance comes at us, persecuting us for our faith, oppressing us, discouraging us, when it's ourselves coming after ourselves with stupidity and sin, God says, don't worry. I got you. We are being guarded by God's power through our faith in Jesus Christ for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And when I'm at wit's end thinking, I'm tired of dealing with this sin. I can't deal with it anymore. God should just kill me and strike me down because I'm such a horrible, wicked person. God, I'm, I'm so sick of it. He looks at us even in that and he goes, don't worry. I got you. Truly, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Can you imagine the effect that these words had on Peter's first readers? dealing with everything they were dealing with. Feeling like maybe, maybe God abandoned us. Maybe we're not his kids. Why do I keep having this struggle? I thought I was saved and converted. Why am I still struggling with this temptation, this sin? I must not really know him. And the devil going, that's right, you don't. You're a horrible failure. Look at you, not even trying hard enough, as if our efforts had anything to do with the salvation God has granted us. the dispersed, scattered, small Sunday gatherings of Christians in what is today Turkey and elsewhere as well. They were battered. They were a tired spiritual lot. And through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they had come to know God's grace and God's favor and God's mercy. But for some, they had found life difficult. And they were filled with the sense that maybe God had forgotten them. And they were in the throes of homesickness. Can't we just leave this life and go home? Can't we just go home? Knowing their discouragement, I believe the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write 
of their future salvation. Don't give up hope, guys. This is not your home. It may be difficult. And in the counsel of God's own counsel, he knows why he hasn't taken you home yet. And biblically, I believe part of that is because he said there's still people that I want you to share the hope that you have with. There's still people in your life, in your sphere of influence, that don't yet have the salvation you have. They don't have the hope of heaven. They don't have the promises of being a co-heir with Christ. And I want you to share with them what I've given you. I want you to share with them what I've done in your life. Now, I'm not saying that, that that's it, like, right? Okay, share with this many people, boop, God's going to take you home. No, but, but I believe that's part of it. Because when he left, a part of his final departing messages to his disciples was, go therefore. While you're still living in this world, go and make disciples. Preach the gospel. I'm coming back for you. But in the meantime, know that God is guarding you. Even against your own stupidity. That I, I especially identify with that one. And I'm so thankful so in these first five verses of this letter, Peter has, has set his readers on their feet and really started out, in a way, telling them what they need to do. Look, face life, face the difficulties, face the challenges, face the sin, face the temptations, face the failures. Rise up and start with blessing God and praising his name. Praise his name. He was telling them that they need to pull again on the anchor of their living hope which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, like so many other ministry, religious, religious leaders in the world of all the different cults, they led and they started religions and then they died and they're dead and they stayed dead. Jesus Christ, however, rose from the dead, confirmed by witnesses. Evidence beyond evidence. If you doubt that, just have the courage to actually go investigate and read some eyewitness accounts from people that were there. Read books of people who have um, um, done the research to investigate. There, there are books by atheists, who, devout atheists, who hated God and set out to prove that this resurrection thing was false. And guess what happened to all of them? They set out to prove it false, and there was so much overwhelming evidence that it happened, they are now believers. Read their book. I challenge you. I challenge you. They needed to be reminded that the inheritance that they're going to receive is there waiting for them. And it's almost beyond words. It will never be destroyed. It will never be polluted. It will never be subject to decay. And finally, Peter teaches that this great future is kept, secured, guarded for us by the almighty power of God and nothing on earth can shake it loose from those who are in Christ. What an amazing hope we have. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we bless your name. We praise you, God. That word blessed, Lord, that is used here just simply means that you are worthy of being praised. And you are so worthy of being praised, God. Lord, we thank you. God, the inheritance you have ready for us, set aside for us, kept. The, the inheritance that you have planned for us astounds us. It boggles our mind, Lord. And we can't wait. I can't wait, Lord, to get home to be with you forever. 
But help us now, Lord, before, before we fully receive our inheritance, God. In the meantime, while we're living here on this earth, to live lives that are undefiled. But when we stumble, help us to know that it is you who guards us. It is you who keeps us. And it is you who secures our salvation. It's in your spirit and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that we place our hope because our hope is alive. Our hope is living, and we thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Let's worship God.